contestants are done. They're in the stands. The families are there, and they get ready to run that 4 by 100 relay. It is powerful. It can be electric. And I don't know about you, I love in the Olympics watching the 4 by 100 That Hummer is over in less than a minute. And actually, I have some time. So the fastest time in the world is the men. Hopefully, next time we'll get it back because um, Bolt is not in there anymore. So from Jamaica, 36.84 seconds. 37 seconds, those four men are making it around that track. I would probably take at least two to three minutes. I don't know. The women have the record right now with our women with 40 seconds, 82. 40.82, they make it around that track. But the thing is with the, with the relay, the four fastest runners on the team come together for one goal. They want to win. They want to win that gold. So what usually happens is they find the four fastest sprinters on the team, and they make the 4 by 100. The thing is this. You can have the best equipment. You can have the gold shoes. You can have everything you need. You can have the four fastest people in the world who now the world record holder right now, the world championships were this last week, and Usain Bolt got beat by an American. Woo! We got one and two. So you can have all those, all those people on your team, but if they drop this baton, they're out. And unfortunately, I have a picture to show you. Here's our women in the Olympics, and they dropped the baton. This has been a few years back. It doesn't matter how fast they are. It doesn't matter what their credentials are. If you don't get this baton off to the next person the right way, you're disqualified and you lose. It makes my stomach sick for them. I actually saw this race happen because these people had been preparing for four years for 40 seconds. Four years for 40 seconds, and they drop that baton. They don't even get into the, the whole race. The next picture, please. Here's our men. They did it too. So sad. So all of, all, all of our best run, runners at one point or another have dropped this baton. And when we, brought, when we drop the baton, it disqualifies us. This handoff is important just for gold around your neck. But the ultimate handoff happened with Jesus. Jesus spent the last three years of his life investing in those 12 disciples. He poured into them. He taught them how to care for people and their needs. He raised them from the dead. He showed them how to heal. He showed them how to take care of people around them. He taught them how to get along with one another. If you read the Gospels, it's all about our relationship with God and our relationship with others. He also taught them that the way to the Father is through him. We have no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ, and Jesus taught that. He taught them everything they needed to continue after he was gone. And he even said many times, he tried to explain to them, I'm going to be leaving you. I'm going to be leaving, and you're going to need to listen to this. You're going to need to hear this because I'm going to pass the baton to you, and you're going to need to run with it. In John 16, 5 and 7, it says, but now... I'm going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, the comforter, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
Jesus was preparing them over and over for his departure. They didn't understand it in the natural. They thought he was going to be the reigning king that was going to take Israel to the heights on this earth. But Jesus' time had come. We see in John 13, 1, they were beginning the Passover, and he gathers his 12 men around him. And he was giving one last instruction, one last coaching, one last, you can do it, one last, get the baton in your hand. It's about ready to happen. And we see that when he went to the cross, the men scattered, and the, the baton was dropped. All of their hopes and dreams were in Jesus. They didn't understand everything that he was saying to them, and the baton got dropped. It should have been the greatest handoff in history, but the baton got dropped. They didn't understand it. They were fearful. But three days later, Jesus rose again, and he gathered those men back up. And he said, in John 20, 19, 23, it says, Then that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, came to Jesus and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them all his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Jesus gathered these men that had scattered. He gathered his team back up. He gathered his relay team, put that baton back in, the, in their hand, but didn't just do that. He breathed on them. He gave them the Holy Spirit so that they would have what they needed. And then he says this to them. He says, go in that upper room and wait for the promise that was given in Acts 2. And, and he said, when the promised Holy Spirit came, the handoff of the ages happened. We read it in Acts 2. When Jesus had ascended, he said, go and wait. The promise is coming. And then he said that the Holy Spirit came, and he fell on each one of them. And we see that the handoff took place because they poured out of that room, and the church was added to that day. That's when the church began, was in Acts 2. Holy Spirit came, empowered those men, and the baton was passed. And it has been being passed for 2,000 years since. In church, I'm here to tell you today, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, it says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. We have all been called to run a race. We have all been given a baton in our hand. Jesus Christ has empowered us. He has saved us. The Holy Spirit has come that we would have courage, that we would not fear and he allows us to go out into this world and pass this baton on to somebody else. We have an amazing race to run. He has given us the ultimate handoff. And I just want to say, don't drop the baton. Be encouraged. If you're not saved today, receive Jesus as your Savior. Be filled with the Spirit so you'll have the power to run this race with endurance, to run this race with excellence and pass the baton on to somebody else. Awesome. This leg of the race is called the imperfect handoff, and um, I get to talk about one of my favorite Bible heroes. Um, of course, I love 
many of the, uh, the men of faith and women of faith in Scripture, but uh, by, by far in the top three, top five, uh, Elijah and Elisha kind of stand apart for me uh, in that uh, particular uh, area. And in the imperfect handoff, I'm calling, that, calling this leg of the race that because while the man Elijah is known predominantly for some of the highlight reels of his faith and of his walk with God and the call that, that uh, he was walking out for the people of Israel in that time, um, he had some difficult tests and trials just like everybody else. Matter of fact, James kind of paints a picture for you and I, gives us hope that when you see a man in Scripture that can pray and fire falls from heaven and you say, how in the world can you top that? James kind of gives us a little bit of insiders and says he's a man just like us. He was not some kind of, uh, uh, you know, mythological being or, or some kind of heavenly being that came down temporary. He was a man. And he had issues, or not issues, but struggles, even as a great man of faith. And so when I look at this imperfect handoff, the thing about Elijah that stands out to me is not only his courage, not only his great gifts, but his independence. He is seen often as a man that we love to admire. He's the man in the Western that we love that stands up to the bad guy. And it, it doesn't matter how many guns are firing at him, his bullet is taking all five of them out. You know, he's just one of those kinds of guys. Um, but and it went, except without a gun, with the word of God. He would go before a king, and he said, Ahab, at my word, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain again because I'm speaking God's word and I have God's will for this, for this moment. And so we see him on his own, alone. Well, the time came when Elijah had his great high at the Mount Carmel where, where he had had that incredible event to down to where he ended up fleeing into the wilderness to survive as he perceived it or just to die there because he became discouraged that the nation wasn't changing and he was running from a, a woman named Jezebel and on his way he left his servant in a town named Beersheba. And I won't go into all of the events there, but basically at the end God renewed his hope and God gave him uh, courage to believe, to believe that things were possible, change was possible again. And then he sent him on this mission. He said, I want you to get up. And I want you to go and I want you to anoint a king. And I want you to anoint another, a king in Israel. And then he comes to this last part and I'm thinking Elijah's saying, right on. Let, I, I, got, I can do an assignment. Give me an assignment. I can do an assignment. I can run with that. And so the last thing he says, and go and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, in Abel Mehalah, that is going to be taking your place. Wait a minute. Okay, he probably was kind of happy in a way, but you know what I find interesting is the first place Elijah went was not to go anoint a king. It's just like an ex-girlfriend that's trolling the new girlfriend. He goes out and he goes on, he, instead of going online, he doesn't go anoint King Haziel or King Jehu. He says, I'm going to check this boy out. And he goes up the way and he goes to see Elijah first. Or Elisha first. And as he goes to see Elisha, he gets there. And this is what's interesting about this. This is the process that I see happening between Elijah and Elisha. There was a reach, there was a receiving, and there was a release. And on the reach part, that's the stretch part. Because any time that you're in a relay race, the coaches will tell you, and you'll know in that competitive moment, that if you ha when you're coming out, the person getting ready to hand off has to stretch out the baton, and the person that is getting ready to receive the baton is to stretch out as well. Not like this, 
not looking around and seeing uh, what somebody else is doing, but they are to have stretch motion and getting ready to take off and move. So it's in the stretch. So Elijah was going to be stretched, and Elisha was going to be stretched. Elijah was getting stretched because as he went to see Elisha, he found him, and what what he went to see, he wasn't sure what he was going to find. So what he does, I love this. He walks up to Elisha when he finds him, and Elisha's behind 12, uh, 12 teams of oxen. He's the last. He throws his mantle, his prophetic mantle on him, and he walks away. Now, the reason why this is important is because it wasn't like this. He didn't throw it on here, walk over, step aside, and wait for him to do something. It says he threw the mantle on, and he walked away. This doesn't sound like Elijah's excited about Elisha. He throws this on here, he throws this mantle on here, and he doesn't. Here's something else. This is why I believe Elisha was not excited about Elijah. Because I believe that as he's plowing, he saw Elijah coming. And everybody knew what Elijah, at least by rumor and by, by going around the land, what he looked like. And you could see his prophetic mantle on him. So that identified him as a prophet. He's walking toward him. So as he's plowing, I have it a hard time to believe. Somebody said, hey, who's that coming down the road? Hey, who's that walking up to, getting ready to walk up to us? And so as they stand there, and they're waiting for this guy to show up, you know what I see Elijah doing? You just ignore it, like you ignore a police officer turning down the corner when you're speeding. You just keep, you just look straight ahead, and you just keep going. And he's plowing straight ahead. Because, you see, as a kid, I kind of grew up with the understanding that Elisha was looking forward to this. Elisha was like, wow, i got to be Elijah's successor. I actually don't know if I believe that anymore, and I'll tell you why. He kept his hands on the plow. Waited for Elijah to come up to him. Waited for him to put the mantle on him before he even did anything. And at that moment, Elijah walked away. He didn't say, would you come be my disciple? He just threw it on there, and he walked away. And Elisha, Elisha, his response is this. Grammar and phraseology tell us a lot. And he says to Elijah with exclamation point, let me say goodbye to my family first. And you know what Elijah says? He's not even facing the scripture, doesn't say he turned, because although this is a different author, in scripture we see different times that there are, that Jesus walked, turned his back, and then it says, turning, he said to them. Here it doesn't say Elijah turned around, he said, go back. Go back. And you know what? He said, but then he turned, then he says, but you consider what I've done for you. So Elisha has community. Elisha has a family to say goodbye to. His stretch is is he's got to let go of relationships. He's got to let go of what he knows. He's got to let go of some things that he is comfortable with. He's got friends that he is working with. And Elijah's saying, what are you waiting for? What's your problem? And here Elisha's saying, I've got people that I need to talk to. Okay, so this is the thing. I love this now. Here's where it gets interesting. I'm going to wrap it up here in a sec. Is that Elijah turns to him and he says this. He says, consider what I've done for you. He's moving from reaching. He says, now it's time to receive, Elisha. It's time to get urgent. This is a one-time opportunity, going once, going twice. Now, before you get hard on Elijah, okay, and he is a cranky dude, and I love him. I think he's awesome. And you know what? I I looked at this, and I realized, realized something. He is easier on this guy than Jesus is on his disciples, Because even though he was insisting right now that he leave instantly, this moment, Jesus turned to his disciples after they had been with him a while. And one of them made a mistake and got out of place. And he turned and he said, oh, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. If you want to be my disciple. Oh. Not, hey, you're my disciple. You need to to do this. He said, if you want to be. 
This is a choice thing. You got to reach out and take it. You got to receive it. Take it. Own it. There's a difference between wanting in and going all in. There's a difference between wanting it and taking it. And so we are called to take it. It's not going to be comfortable. There's going to be sacrifices. It means a hit on our family. It means a hit on our personal time. It means a hit on things that we enjoy doing. We ain't going to have time to do. But it calls on us to take it. And that's the sacrifice. You know what it says after Elijah said that? It says he went out, went to his oxen, he broke his plow, he made a fire, he fed his friends, and he waited for him to do all that, and then he went to be Elijah's assistant. You see? Elijah could no longer be Mr. Incredible. Buddy, I work alone. All right? Now he had a partner. Last point is this, is that it came to release. Fast forward. They're getting ready to go, and I love this. Here it is. You'd think some time, and he'd warmed up to Elisha. No. (laughs) And the reason I say this is you don't have to like the people that you work with all the time. I love the people of God, but I don't like all the people of God. I love the people of God. There's just some people, it's hugging them is hugging a porcupine or, or walking through some brush. But you know what? That's okay because we're still called to hand off to them. We're still called to release to them. And Elijah came and he said, it says, he, he goes to him and he tells us, and I love this. He tells, he tells uh, Elijah, he says, they come to Bethel and he says, hey, God's telling me I got to go on. So, hey, thanks. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for, you've learned a lot. You know, be good. I got to go on. But Elisha says, no. He says, wherever you go, I'm going. He goes to the next place. And Elijah tries to pull it again. He says, hey, man, thanks for walking this way. It's been nice. It's, it's been fun, but not real fun. Just stay here, and you can have this. And he says, God's calling me on. He said, no, I'm going with you as the Lord lives, as your soul lives. I'm going on. Now, let me tell you why this is important. Elijah had one other servant, one other servant that is recorded that we know of, and he was only with Elijah in the high. He was not with Elijah by the brook alone when he was fed by ravens. He was not with Elijah when he was in the widow's house being fed by, miraculously by meal and oil. He was not there, but he was with Elijah on, the, on Mount Carmel. He just pops out of nowhere. We don't know where, and suddenly he's mentioned. But when he got threatened, he left. You see, when it comes to this race, there's a certain toughness that gets developed as you continue on and press through the things you don't like, the people that rub you the wrong way in the house of God. That in spite of all that conflict, you somehow manage to hang in there because something's going to be released that you're not going to get if you don't hang in there. And so Elisha comes one more time, and he gives him a third try to quit, and Elisha says no. Now listen to this. This is where we're quitting. I'm going to hand it off to my, my beautiful wife this morning. And that is that Elijah comes to him one more time, and he says, will you? And he says, no. So they go to the River Jordan. God does a miracle on parting this, and there's nothing in Scripture that lends this to legend, folklore. God is just a powerful God, and Elijah's a man that knows God. And so he goes through this water, and before they're getting ready to go, it says this. This happens. He turns to Elijah and says, what do you want? Okay, you, you stuck it out. Okay, what do you want? And he says, I want a double portion of your spirit. I want, I want, that's what I want. Elijah says, you've asked a hard thing, but I tell you what, and I love this, this is, <laughs> he doesn't make it easy. He don't make it easy. If you see me when I'm taken out of here, it's yours. If you don't, you won't. Sounds like a real giving guy, right? But yet he's saying, if you see, it will. So God sends and catches up Elijah, and Elisha sees it, and this is where we see the exchange, is that Elijah, though he gave Elisha a hard time, and Elisha endured, Even though he saw Elijah carried up, it wasn't a mystical mist that came down on Elisha and anointed his ministry. It says he looked down, and Elijah dropped his mantle before he was taken up so he could be taken out. And with that, that's our handoff to to Dieter.
I'm going to need just a moment to reflect on my glory days when I used to run the 1,600-meter relay in high school. There's nothing so glamorous or glorious than running the final event on a Saturday night under the hot white lights with the bleachers full and your families and your friends and your teammates encouraging you. There's nothing more exciting than coming around the last corner of that lap and looking and you see your competitors and you know that you're keeping up. You know that you're running your race well. When all of your adrenaline is pumping and it's pushing you, there's nothing so exciting. And you know the most nerve-wracking part of a relay is the handoff because you come down that straight away in your sprint you still have the breath you still have the fire in your muscles it's taking you that you can feel you can feel the lungs tightening up and you know the moment is coming when you have to hand off because you don't have the juice anymore and that's the most key moment when you reach out and you pass off to the next runner and today I'm going to talk about the excellent handoff the excellent exchange and we're going to talk about Moses Moses was a prophet like no other. He stood in the presence of God. He saw the glory of God. He brought a whole nation out of captivity and led them to the very gates of the promised land. The word says that there was never again a prophet like him. But he, even in all his phenomenal ministry and leadership, had to hand off. So today I'm going to talk about that. The word in Deuteronomy 34 and 9 says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him. This is very important. This is the handoff. The first part of an excellent exchange is momentum. Both runners are moving. So that's first, this first runner, he's running, and he is becoming weary because he's given it all. Some of the passion may be flaming out. The adrenaline, the pump is coming down. And like Tim said, he's beginning to reach. But the, the next runner has to be in motion because it's very difficult to start running your fastest from a standing still position with your hand behind you. So he has to be moving. So the timing is incredibly important. So Moses sees that person running ahead of him. He's not running for full throttle, but Joshua's starting to make those strides. Moses is looking around. Joshua and Caleb come back, and they say, we are well able to take the land. And Moses says, this guy has some momentum. There's some faith in action. It's already moving. So when you're about to hand off, look around. Who's already in motion? Whose faith is already moving forward? Because this is somebody that is a good candidate to hand off to. Both Moses and Joshua were in motion. Both of them had faith in action, and Moses was familiar with his teammate. Second is impartation. When the baton is exchanged, something is released. Something is imparted. Something is given. It says that Joshua had a spirit of wisdom. Do you know why? For Moses had laid hands on him. Joshua had a spirit of wisdom because Moses spiritually imparted a spirit of wisdom. Something was handed off to him. Moses was a phenomenal leader. We see that he was a leader and a prophet like no other. Joshua's coming up. Guess what? He's a phenomenal warrior. We don't hand off to people who are just like us. We don't hand off to people who have the same giftings and abilities as us. We hand off to people who need something that we have. That's empowering. So Joshua was a different kind of runner than Moses. 
and, and we see now we're going to hit this last point of an excellent exchange, and that is the fresh runner begins. So something is handed off, and now guess what? Because Moses releases it, the next runner is able to go. What happens if the hand slaps the baton into the next hand, but then that last runner decides, I'm not ready to give that up yet. You're going to break momentum. You're going to break stride. I encourage you today if you're coming to an end of a season, because guess what? We don't exchange at the end of our life. We're continually exchanging. We are continually handing off. There are so many moments in our life when something that was passionate and powerful going on in us no longer stirs us, and we have to hand off to somebody else. That's good. Do you know why? Because the moment you slap the baton in somebody else's hand, your hand is now free to reach back and take the next baton for the next season in your life. Sometimes we're so afraid to give something up because we feel like a part of us is going to leave. But guess what? Every time we come to God with an open hand, he has something for that hand to do. Exchange this morning. The exchange. We see Joshua. He takes off running, does he not? Just a couple passages down, we see Joshua say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Can we change that a little? He says, as for me and my house, we will run. And he begins to run. What happens? The city of Jericho falls to the children of Israel under the leadership of Joshua. He's a warrior. He's leading armies. He's doing everything that he was called to do. Do you know the only thing that Joshua failed to do in his race was exchange? If you look down, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. Skipping down, it says, when all of that generation had been gathered to their fathers, a generation came up who did not know God or all that he had done for them. Joshua failed to look around and find somebody in stride. He failed to make the exchange. Let go this morning of that ministry, that idea, that thing that you were once passionate about, you were once hopeful about, but now it weighs on you. There is a runner who is ready. And then you fling that hand back and you look for who's coming behind to hand off to you this morning and make an excellent exchange. We're blessed to have such great people. I'm going to ask you, if you would, if you'd uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Melissa alluded to the fact that we've all been called to run, and, and that is true. But I think there's been times in, in church history or, or poor doctrine where somehow we think that when we get to a certain age that our run is done. I've done enough. I've taught Sunday school. I did chicken dinners. I did all this stuff. It's time for me to sit down. And we find that that is nowhere in the Bible. You don't get to retire from your life. And as Dieter said as well, there's, you may have let go of something, but you've got to realize somebody else is reaching out towards you again. And so no matter what your age, no matter what your time, and I'm telling you this because of a reason, uh, not that we're going to see it in Hebrews, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but when you go from Joshua, the next book is called Judges. 
And because he failed to hand off to another generation, there is chaos in the nation. And if you read that, incredibly bad and, and incredibly heroic things happened. But one of the trademark things that you'll see happen is this sense of lawlessness where people draw to God and they fall away. They draw to God and fall away. And this key phrase comes out, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes since there was no ruler in Israel. Church, don't take this as guilt. But when you decide... I'm done, and you have not handed off to somebody else. You're preparing the next generation to do what is right in their own eyes. We must continue to lead. We must continue to look for somebody to hand off. We must continue to look to reach out. Somebody's got to be reaching out, and somebody's got to be letting go at all times of our lives. And we've got to understand we've all got this race to run, and our job is to continue to race until the very end. And, and the deviation that I'm going to make this morning is that, yes, there's these relays, but God says in Hebrews that this is an endurance race. <laughs> Now, we don't have that in the Olympics, but I want to let you know that if you're somebody that's decided it's time to sit down, I'm the crowbar, I'm the stirring stick, I'm the one that's supposed to spark to you to say, get off your hind parts and not do extra work. It's not about doing more. But what it is, is looking for somebody to hand off what you've learned in your marriage, with your kids, with your money, with your life, with your prayers, with your whatever. You haven't gotten to that age that you're at now by, by uh, happenstance. It wasn't an accident. You've made it this far by doing certain things, and they need to know what you did and what not to do. So if you join me here, I want you to see this. We're going to read just the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let's break that down for a little bit. Notice what he says. First, he starts it off with the therefore of realizing that there was a bunch of people at the end of chapter 11 that had to overcome stuff, and all of them died, and all of them had big problems. All of them were on the verge of, of collapse, but by faith, they were overcomers. They weren't highly educated. They weren't overqualified. They were just normal people that God called, that trusted God to do what they were supposed to do. And it says specifically they were stoned. They were sown in two. They were tempted. They were slain. They were wandering about in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute and afflicted and tormented. And I love verse 38. And the world was not worthy of them. Just ordinary people like you and me that trusted God and the world was not worthy of them. Therefore, knowing this, knowing that there was people that went through much more than we're ever going to go through, we're surrounded by these people cheering us on and also watching us saying, come on, you've got to make that handoff. And he gives us the reason and the method to do this. Look what he says. Lay aside every weight. You ever notice that these runners, I mean, they're barely wearing anything? Can you imagine if they had to weight everybody the same to run those races? Like they do with horse racing? You weight everybody up? I mean, then you'd want to get some really heavy runners, wouldn't you? But they want the bear. They've got like ounces for shoes. they got like a skin suit on that basically weighs nothing. 
because they don't want any hindrances. And the message that God's giving for us today is you got to drop the baggage. Don't drop the baton, but you got to drop the baggage. All that weight, the good stuff, the bad stuff, everything in between, it's just extra weight that you're carrying that you don't need. You've got to run the race, and the more you carry, the less far you run. And this morning, some of you, you've been running for baggage for so long, you're tired. And for many of you, that's why you've decided to sit down. You haven't dropped your baggage. You got tired. You've seen changes in the church. You've seen changes in your kids. You've seen a world change. You're, you're worried. You're concerned. And you've taken your eyes off the prize, which is Jesus Christ, and put it on comfort or retirement. And those are good things. But that's not our goal. Our goal is heaven. Our goal is is to make disciples. Our goal is to pass on to the next generation because if not, we're one generation of a church dropping the baton of faith. And then what will happen? Once it's dropped, you got to wait for the next race. You don't get to scoop it back up again. You don't get to have a do-over. And I'm going to tell you this morning, whether it sounds stern or not, that's the ploy of the enemy. You look back to Moses, he knew. The enemy knew Moses was a deliverer, and he tried to wipe him out. We're going to kill all the children about that age. And then you see it fast forward to Jesus' time. Another deliverer is coming. And what happens? The enemy puts it in the mind of Herod the king, and he says, let's get rid of all the boys of that age. And he tries again because he knows if we can stop a generation from passing the baton, the deliverance will stop. The message will stop. The faith will stop. And we have an important thing. It does matter about our faith. It does matter what we're doing. And again, I'm not telling you to do more, but what I am telling you is you got to be looking for somebody to hand off to. No matter how old you are, no matter what you've seen, no matter what you've done, and it's hard to grab the baton when you're loaded down with baggage, let it go. Let it go. Then he goes on to verse 2. Realizing this is an endurance race, we've got to get rid of the baggage, the sin. Look what he says. Who are we supposed to look to? Not the people around us. Not even the other competitors. We're not looking at other churches. We're not looking at other people running. We're looking at Jesus. When we take our eyes off him, that's when we start getting into trouble. That's when churches start to get in trouble. That's when our faith starts to decline. That's when our morals start to get compromised. We must keep our focus on Jesus. I don't care what the legal things are going on. I don't care what's happening in the White House. I don't care about those things. We must keep our eyes on Jesus. He is eternal. Those other things are not. And every time we get involved with those, we take our eyes off Jesus. You can only focus on one thing at a time. And he has called us to run a race. And he is the finish line. And some of you have been running to false finish lines. Oh, i got to make it till I stop the job. I've got to make it till I pass off this ministry. Then you're just starting another race. There is no end for us. We start a race. We finish a race. We start another race. We finish another race. And it's the training that's in it, as Melissa alluded to. Four years to run for 40 seconds. You think that was their only race? 
You think they just trotted around and, and they never did any other type of training until it came to the Olympics? They raced and they raced and they raced and they raced and they practiced and they practiced and they practiced because they know that that handoff is so important. This is why I call you back to the Word of God and not to men's doctrines and not to the culture of this world. It will make you drop the baton, but we've got to hold fast to our faith, church, and that faith is God's Word. It says that we're supposed to make disciples. It says that we're supposed to hand it off to somebody else, that we're supposed to run with perseverance and endurance. This is not a sprint. Anybody can be a Christian for three minutes. But 30 years, anybody can stay married for a couple months. But 70 years to the same person? Notice I didn't say happily married. There will be times of unhappiness. And I'm, I'm a straightforward pastor. I'm going to tell you, there will be hard times in churches. If you've been in this church for a while, there's good and bad and ugly but there's no different in any other church. You go to another church, you just haven't been there long enough to know the good, the bad, the ugly, but you stay long enough, you're going to see it. You know why? It's filled with people. And amongst all of us, there's good, bad, and ugly. And so if you say, well, I'm not running anymore because they all did what was right in their own eyes because they took their eyes off of Jesus. Here's his encouragement to us. He says, we look to Jesus, who's the author. He's the one that begins it and the finisher of our faith. He handed it off, as Melissa said, even the pre-incarnate Christ handed off the Ten Commandments, handed off our faith to us, and then Jesus comes back around and he gives it to these men so that they can hand it off to others, and we've been entrusted with something that is worth handing off. We should not be embarrassed by what we've got to hand off. We should not be ashamed by the faith that we have. We should not be ashamed because of the great Holy Spirit that's been given to us and the anointing that we have. There's nothing for us to be ashamed of. This gospel that we have is pure and it is good and it is powerful. We have nothing to be ashamed of. And it's not throwing it, it's handing it, it's building the trust and the relationship of working time and time and time and time again until we know we can hand off to the person that's behind us and in front of us. He says that things are going to get hard. Look what he says. He says, for the joy that was set before him, he knew there was something past this hard time. He endured the cross, he despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We've got to be willing to realize there's something better on the other side. Not just heaven, but seeing another generation of worship leaders, a Sunday school of preachers and evangelists and prophets and teachers and pastors raising up. Because if it stops with us, we lose the race. And there's something more than a medal at stake, isn't there? And I think somehow because of our distractedness, we forget that there are souls hanging in the balance. Not medals. Who cares about gold medals? But an eternal soul, one for Jesus Christ, is forever to change a life and a life that changes a family and a family that changes a community. 
Do you see the joy? But if we get careless, if we get weighed down, look what he says, verse 3. He says, consider him, him being Jesus, who endured hostility. We're still living in a time where there's a lot of hostility from sinners against himself. So when you face these things, just know you're on the right path. You're in the right lane when you're facing hostility from the world because they are hostile towards Jesus. But if you don't consider him who is able to endure this, look what he says. You may become weary and discouraged in your soul. You see, one of the things that happens in these handoffs and in this race is that there's some, as George W. Bush would say, some strategery. (laughs) They just don't pick straws and say, oh, who wants to go first today? Every leg of the race is run with a strategy. And the person that carries a huge amount of the pressure is the last leg. Because they could have run three laps well. And if the last handoff is dropped, they're done. If the last man isn't focused, they can be done. If the last man isn't their strongest person, both mentally and physically, they can be done. You can see somebody that got a bad handoff and they struggled, but they made the handoff and they're behind, but that last runner can bring them home to victory. We have to keep our eyes on the author and finish of our faith. I want to call up a, a small group of people up here for, for you to understand this. If we could have Marvin, Dorothy Davenport, Monty and Carol Fulbright, Tyler and Raina Baker, and Allie Juntnan and Garrett Johnson, if you'd join me up here real quick. We've got multiple generations. Come on up here, all the way up here. You get to be in the limelight tonight. Multiple generations. Marv and Dorothy have been married longer than most of these people have been alive, let alone being alive themselves. (laughs) But somewhere along the way, they had children that they had hand off faith to (laughs) and stayed in a church and handed off faith, and Monty and Carol, and each generation has to take that faith and pass it to the next, to the next young couple that's going to pass it to the next young one, and the next young one, and the next one. And and when you're done, guess what? The baton comes back around because now you're grandma. Now you're married. Now you're working, and now and you're handing off and receiving. And I want you to understand this, church. For each one that's got to hand off to generation to generation, it's easy to be around the generation that you're in. You know those people. You know what they're going through. 
but you've got to be willing to think about the future. What does this young couple need to know? That the Davenports and the Fulbrights can pass on to them. That they haven't been there yet. That they haven't walked through it yet. And they have to be willing to receive. <laughs> receive understanding. Receive wisdom. Receive that handoff. Because even in track, there's a short window. They can't just keep running. They've got lines marked that you can't hand it off too soon. And you can't hand it off too late. There's a window where somebody has to reach back. And there's a window where somebody has to reach forward. And at one point, whether you can see it or not, at one point in that handoff, they're both touching the baton. If it's done right. If it's not, it falls. So whomever you are, if you're in the generation of, of the Tyler and the Rainers, encourage each other and be ready for a handoff. If you're in the generation of the Marv and Dorothys, are you ready to hand off? Who are you looking around? Don't just be with your friends. Look for somebody to hand that off to. They've got to hand off to a Amani and Carol, Amani and Carol have to hand off to the bakers, and the bakers got to hand off to an alley, and Allie's got to hand off to a Garrett. And Garrett's got to find another generation too. Or believe me, if we're not looking around, we saw what happened. We can be like Joshua, and we get so caught up in our mission, and then what happens? There was no one to hand off to. I would dare say, church, we are already in a place in our nation where leaders forgot to be leaders and everyone seems to be doing what is right in their own eyes. And as I said last week, we can't control everything, but you know what we can control? We can determine to be leaders that are going to hand off our faith. Just within this church, what other churches do, what other denominations do, what other parts of the world do, that's on them. But we have been called by God to pass on our faith to another generation, passing on our stories, passing on the battles, passing on the good and the bad by handing it off and reminding them what's at stake. I know there's people that are fearful for the next generation. I'm not. You know why? Because we've got something to hand them. But we also have to help teach them to reach out. <laughs> They've got to be willing to receive. I think they're smart. I think they're savvy. I think they're questioning things maybe we never questioned in a generation today. But it doesn't mean they're not ready to receive what God has for them. They may look different. They may act different. They may dress different. They may talk different, if they talk at all and not just text you. <laughs> but that doesn't mean they've checked out. I believe in the next generation we've got to prepare them. And we don't have to make them look like us. But we've got to be willing to put it out there and say, are you ready? And they're going to run a different race. They're going to run different times. But that's not up to us. That's up to Jesus to help them endure that race. 
And I don't know who you relate with the most up here, but you've got to find your pace and you've got to find your place. Some of you, you need to step up and start reaching out, accepting what God's called you to. Some of you, you've ran a good race and it's time to hand off. It's time to reach forward to another generation. If you're younger, it's time to start reaching back. And I want to close it up with this. The person receiving the handoff can't turn around. You're facing the wrong direction. It's got to be in motion. Notice that they're all running the same way. We've all been given a destination called heaven. We've all been given the Bible as our guide. We can all go in unity. We may walk differently, talk differently, look different, all that stuff, but we're all still going to the same place. That's why we keep our sights on Jesus Christ. But we've got to reach back, and we've got to reach forward. And for those of you that are young, reaching back is safe because you know you've got roots. You've got people that have been there and done that, and they've held on to their faith. And for those of you that are older, reaching forward may feel a little scary. Because <laughs> you don't understand maybe who they are. But all your job is, is to give them what you've got. You see, the goal, which I think is funny, is those batons are nothing more than some aluminum tubes. Nobody values the baton, but it's one of the most important pieces of equipment that they've got. But I want you to think about this for a minute. It's just a tunnel with a beginning and an end made to go through. It's the process that God has called us to. You've got to come in one side and out the other. Depending on which way you're going, they're both entrances, they're both exits, but the reality is we're not supposed to stay in the middle. <laughs> it's to go through. Church, we're in a transition time in our world, but God is going to be handing off from generation to generation. I'm so thankful that we've got multiple generations in our church. And I'm not so much going to pray over these as people, but just who they represent blocks of 10 to 15 years. And I want to ask if you'd pray with me this morning. Pray, pray for them. We're going to start with this, with this Davenport generation. And I know there's some older than them even, but we're going to pray. Lord, for this generation that has led well, that has been faithful, that has been through times of good, bad, and ugly and stayed in their faith. God, I pray that we wouldn't discard them and that they wouldn't feel disconnected, but they would once again realize they're so needed, they're so wanted, they're so valuable, that they must hand off to the next generation. So God, I pray for, for this age bracket, Lord, that you would empower them and equip them to begin looking for whom they're to hand off next. Their time is not done, not until you call them home. But they've got something to give. They've got knowledge and wisdom and grace and compassion. They've got a walk that knows what it means to take the distance. So, Lord, help them. 
And Lord, I pray for this Fulbright age generation, Lord, that have been such doers and servers. God, they've received that handoff well. And God, I pray that you would help them to be ready to hand off to the next generation. God, they have served meals and set up dinners and taught Sunday school and they've been ushers and greeters and they've done it all and seen it all in the church. And Lord, I pray they'd pass that on to another generation. The ability to stick to it when it's been hard. They've seen pastors come and go. They've seen people come and go and still they've been faithful. Lord, teach us these ways. Teach us these ways, Lord for this generation. And Lord, I pray for this, this new generations coming up, these young couples, Lord, these 30-somethings. God, I pray, God, that first of all, you'd help them to realize that they're needed, that they're valuable. And then we're not judging their outward appearance. God, all we want to do is see them engage. Father, I pray for your hand to be upon them, to guide them and lead them. God, to keep their eyes set on Jesus and not the ever-changing landscape of the ethics of this world, but they would realize you're the author and the finisher. Father, help them to be fruitful. Help them to understand that you're raising them up to be authorities one day, to be leaders, to be servants. God, that they are not entitled, but only by your word, that if they cannot serve, they cannot lead. So, Father, would you help them? And, Lord, I pray for the young college age. Father, they're in a tumultuous time of what is right and wrong, what is truth and error. God, I pray that they would find their path in you. They'd find their purpose in you. It's easy to walk away from the church and, and experience the world, but, God, this is where their roots are. This is where their faith is. This is where they're protected. This is where they can get the training that they needed. This is where they can be loved and forgiven and accepted, and they don't have to compromise. So, Father, I pray for your hand to be upon them, to guide them. Lord, to let them be like the Elishas. God, that they burn those bridges that take them back. They, they cook their oxen so that they'll no longer be a distraction. And they fulfill the plan that God has for them. And Lord, for those that are still in school, God, this, this up-and-coming generation that are watching how we race, Father, fill them with courage. Fill them with faith. God, let them know their questions are okay. God, let them know that they don't have to always do it the way that we do it, but they've got to do what God has called them to do. They've called them to step up. They've called them to have morals. They've called them to make a decision for Jesus Christ. He's called them to be his own. He's called them to reach out to their friends, to their generation, to, to start there. And God, it's easy to be distracted with everything that they've got at their disposal. But God, I pray that they would put their sight on you. So Lord, I pray that there would be a whole new uprising of pastors and preachers and teachers and prophets and evangelists and missionaries and ushers and greeters and jail workers and janitors and everybody that would work within the church and outside of the church that would serve you well, God, that there's nothing demeaning about it, whether they ever get paid for it or not, but they're called to serve this body. So Lord, each one of these, they're your own children 
and I doubt that you see their age. You just see them as your beloved, just this great wall of faith, this house being built. So, Lord, would you take the rest of us in our respective age categories, help us not drop the baton. Help us not hold so tightly to it that we forget that we're designed to let go of it at some point. And Lord, that we're all running a race. We're not stagnant. It's not time to rest. It's not time to quit. It's not time to retire from your faith. Yes, you can retire from your job, but that gives you the time to pour into others looking for a handoff. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that we have these oldest down to brand new babies right here in our church this morning. May it always be so, Lord, I pray that we never get to just be young people and never just be older people, but, God, that we've got every generation so that the handoffs continue. So, church, I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me this morning.